I'm Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a talk that I gave at Marin Sangha on May 31st, 2015. The last time I'd been at Marin Sangha teaching, I had asked the Sangha members if there was a specific topic they really wanted me to teach on, and hands down, addiction was the topic that came up most, and that was really fun for me because I got to put on my two hats as a psychotherapist who works a lot with people who suffer with addiction and also as a Dharma teacher who is eminently interested and engaged with the beautiful teachings on addiction in the mind from Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology. I am going to come at addiction tonight from a more global perspective because we all suffer from addiction in the mind. But um, because I know that there are maybe people here who would like to have some information on addiction itself, I would be happy to spend the first five minutes putting on my clinical hat. I have yet to work with someone who is suffering with addiction who doesn't have a trauma history. So that is the bottom line for me, frankly, when it comes to full-on addiction. And I, I think it's important to make the distinction here and be very honest about addiction, um, especially when it comes to substances. Most people do not have addiction who claim to have addiction. They don't. Addiction in the scientific literature is the later stage of dependence and not, oh, I just can't seem to go without having my substance of choice. And so I definitely make the distinction. And I know this is uncomfortable for people because in America we have a disease culture. So we say that addiction is a disease. And the truth is, in the rest of the world, um, abstinence is not the only way. There is harm reduction that is used successfully in the rest of the world. And of course, this is also very uncomfortable for Americans because we just, we don't know about this. So, um, and harm reduction is actually being used quite successfully. However, from a Buddhist perspective, what I do want to say is that the Buddha actually used the word apamada a lot. And that word is translated as sobriety. So the Buddha was very clear about sobriety. And I'm not talking about the fourth of the five precepts, actually. The fifth of the five precepts? The fifth. Thank you. The fifth of the five precepts. No, I'm not talking about that. I am talking about sobriety in the mind. Clearly knowing the nature of reality as it is. That is what the Buddha said was sobriety. So, using that definition, we could all say that we suffer from delusion. And therefore, we are all 
uh, subject to the addiction of suffering in the mind. So in that way, we are all addicts, trust me. <laughs> but in the clinical sense, because I've never worked with anyone who has full-on addiction problem, who doesn't have a trauma history, I pretty much have concluded that substance use is the, a fantastic method to self-medicate the difficulties that people live with when they function in the world with a trauma history. Because what happens is they're essentially working with a nervous system that's agitated, chronically switched on. That doesn't feel good, trust me. They're working with a mind that is reactive and fearful most of the time. And it's a very difficult way to go through the world. And substances are a wonderful way to find some kind of relief. And I, I think we can all agree it's not a great method for relief. You're shaking your head, I know, because you work with this all the time. So it's, it's, it's a very open-hearted way of being with individuals who are suffering with addiction by recognizing that what they've done, they have done because they had to survive. But it's a bad way to survive. So, essentially, um, there is a whole set of tools that we can offer people who are suffering with addiction that are very similar to the tools that we offer everyone else who's suffering from delusion in the mind. So we don't set them aside and say, well, you're worse off or whatever. We just say, well, your substance of choice just happens to be the thing that you are experiencing delusion over. And that's because there's a need to fix experience. And I think we can all relate to the need to fix experience, can we not? So I just invite all of us to recognize that we are all suffering the need to fix experience, to make things something other than what they are. And that's pretty much the same thing that anybody who has an addiction problem is struggling with. They are no different than us. It just looks more extreme, and frankly, they may be using fixing methods that are unbelievably harmful to them, and much more harmful than what we might do for ourselves. One of the worst addiction problems we have in this country is addiction to pain medication. So that should tell you something about the nature of the suffering. But truly, the problem with addiction to pain medication is that pain medication doesn't actually work very well. And it stops working. So it's actually a really poor delivery method for relief for someone who has chronic pain. And the other thing that's very important to know is that almost all of the agitation and Chronic pain is, can, has as its main contributor inflammation in the body. And pro-inflammatory cytokines 
wreak a tremendous amount of havoc in our mental, emotional, and physical systems. And a very good example of this is a study, a series of studies that were done at Kaiser down in San Diego. They studied over 17,000 people, and they're all Kaiser patients, which means, you know, they're just regular people, basically. Um, these aren't people who are living on the streets. These are people who have jobs and whatever. And they looked at the physical and mental diseases that they had, and every time a patient came in for just a regular checkup, for, for an office visit, they would actually hand them a trauma checklist, and they would ask them to check off if they had ever had trauma in five specific categories when they were children. And the individuals, and this isn't specific kinds of trauma, these are categories, okay, who checked four or more categories had significantly greater incidence of a variety of physical and mental and emotional diseases that they were being treated for. And so what this is telling us is that, in general, we live lives that are fairly sick. Our culture is not well, and we are overstressing our systems continually, and we're ill. And one of the ways to mitigate and ameliorate that illness is to use substances. And there's all kinds of substances, right? Not just drugs and alcohol, but food. That's another substance. Sex. Any number of things. Anything to fix what's wrong. The bottom line of addiction is this. There's an incapacity to be able to rest the mind and the body in the full range of human experience. Now one of the problems with our culture is that we are addicted to disembodiment and anesthetization. We are thoroughly addicted to pleasure, convenience, and ease. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. yes. I mean, it's just an expectation, isn't it? And if we don't have that, for us, there's something wrong. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I find this very disturbing, actually. Because what has happened is our total addiction to convenience and ease has led to a sanitized kind of living where we, frankly, are separated off and we don't see much of the suffering in the world. Those of you who know the story of um, Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha, his father set up a situation for him for the first 28 years of his life in this pleasure palace where he never experienced any of the normal basic pain. But the problem is we are living as though we are in the palace, but we are not. We are surrounded by suffering. It's everywhere, and yet we don't see it.
some of you, due to your age, may actually have been in the presence of death. You may have had people who have died, but most people, have, they're not around death. They've never seen death. It's just not something we see. This is such a basic, beautiful part of human life, and most people in the modern world have no idea what death is like. How many of you, 30 years on into a volunteer army, have relatives who serve in the military? A few. This is unusual. Normally in circles like this, nobody raises a hand. Why? Because our all-volunteer army is largely populated by young men and women who grow up in seriously severe childhood adverse environments, poverty-stricken neighborhoods, drug-infested neighborhoods, tons of violence. The military now has realized that the young people who are coming in have experienced so much trauma that they have now have a checklist that they give before a soldier is deployed for the first time or redeployed, they give them a checklist. And the checklist lists all the kinds of trauma you might have experienced in your life, like I've actually killed somebody or I've seen somebody get killed. I mean, it's serious. We're talking real serious trauma. And it turns out <coughs> that the young people who have not yet been on the battlefield. They haven't been to war yet. Their scores on these checklists, in some cases, is higher than the people who've actually been to war. They've already grown up in a war zone. So part of our addiction as a culture is our addiction to self-cherishing. Now, this is a term that isn't used so much in the Theravada vehicle, but in the Mahayana vehicle of Buddhism, it is equated with avidya, which is primordial ignorance, which is used a lot in the Theravada vehicle. There's a, a beautiful saying in the Lojong mind training, which says, bring all blames to a single harm. And that single harm is self-cherishing. So, you know you're in the presence of self-cherishing when you're putting your own interests and importance ahead of others, when you are um, under the spell of believing the distorted self-narratives that the egoistic self tells you about you and about this world, and most of that narrative is what causes most of the suffering in this world. And also, when, like for most of us, we're just under the spell of this pervasive unawareness that all beings are similarly suffering from the scourge of self-cherishing, which means when somebody perpetrates harm upon you, they are suffering from self-cherishing. They are actually no different than you. They are a human being who is suffering. So this culture of self-cherishing that we live in is a perfect setup for fixing. 
If I don't like it, I'll fix it. And I'm going to seek my own welfare. And in order for me to do it the way our culture tells us we should do it, because of course we're supposed to be superlative and we are supposed to be exceptional and we're supposed to have the most amazing job and we're supposed to marry the most amazing person and live in the best neighborhood and have all the best things, right? And this is what constitutes happiness in a culture of self-cherishing like we live in. So if something isn't beautiful and wonderful, fix it. And to me, this is what underscores pretty much almost all of the over-attentiveness that we have to ameliorating pain whenever it shows up and making sure that we don't suffer. And that's suffering. (laughs) And we don't know it. We're so deluded we don't even know that fixing is suffering. Now I want to be very clear. Fixing does not mean that you don't try to make the world a better place. That's not the kind of fixing that I'm talking about. Fixing is, I'm feeling uncomfortable and I can't handle it and I have to go do something about it. That's fixing. And chances are, the actual discomfort isn't nearly as bad as the story the self is telling us about the discomfort. That's the distortion, that's the delusion, right there. And the addiction that we all have is the belief that that's true. When it just isn't. It's not true. The Buddha had a very beautiful saying in the Dhammapada. If by giving up a lesser happiness one could experience greater happiness. A wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. Now in the neuroscience of addiction, there appears to be several different ways in which the reward pathways function. And one of the ways in which it functions is that we become very attenuated to the short-term gratification of things. And it's a very deeply etched pathway to choose short-term gratification over long-term gratification. And frankly, the training in appreciating long-term gratification is a training, I think. And usually Buddhist practitioners are pretty well schooled (laughs) in long-term gratification, (laughs) don't you think? (laughs) Especially when at every turn, it doesn't matter what's happening in your experience, you go to your Buddhist teacher and they always say the same thing. Okay, just keep practicing. (laughs) That's just the ultimate. Later, sometime later. (laughs) So... For me, one of the things that I like to do with the people I work with is to open them up to the immediate gratification 
of the world as it actually is. Because I find, for the most part, um, individuals who really are suffering with addiction, that's not the major problem they have. Unless, of course, they're addicted to something like heroin, and you know that is just an ugly substance, and that really does need to be detoxed off of. Um, or methamphetamine, which basically completely wrecks your brain. Um, these substances have physical ramifications that are a little bit outside of what I'm talking about. The immediacy of actual experience is so profoundly beautiful, but it's the very thing that individuals who grow up in traumatic childhood environments lose their connection with very early on. And there's a good reason for this, and that is because mammals have a very particular way of being in the world in order to create safety for themselves. So if the environment is unsafe, and if the mammal can't run, or if it can't fight and defend itself, it will freeze. This is the dorsal vagal system. And the whole nervous system will just go into dorsal vagal shutdown. Good way to illustrate this is bunny rabbits. They're completely defenseless. They've got nothing on board. You know? <laughs> so when a predator comes, grabs the bunny, the bunny has one very sophisticated mechanism, and that is its dorsal vagal shutdown. And what will happen is the bunny will immediately go dead. And I mean dead in every way, shape you can imagine, except it's still awake. It's aware. So the predator is shaking the bunny, and it realizes the bunny's dead, and the predator is bored. So the predator throws the bunny off, right? The bunny's still awake, so the bunny knows it's been thrown off, and the predator goes on its merry way to find something else that's more interesting to eat. And as soon as the bunny knows that it's safe, the bunny shakes off the dorsal vagal freeze uncontrollably. That's what it does. It just shakes, 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 shakes until there's nothing left. And then it pops up and it goes on its merry way trauma-free. We don't do that. And mostly, children who grow up in adverse childhood environments can't run and they can't fight. So they get stuck in freeze a lot. And one of the manifestations of dorsal vagal freeze is dissociation. You leave. It's not safe where you are, so you just leave. You go off. And this becomes a habit in the nervous system. And it, to me, it is one of the reasons why there's so much addiction that's connected with trauma history because it's just a way to be able to get out, to go away. And again, this is something we all truly need to be open-hearted about because people don't choose to become addicted to substances and other things. It's hell, trust me. And there isn't a lot of pleasure in it. After that one amazing, stamped-in, dopamine first experience with a substance. It's never like that again, but the brain is just chasing that stamped-in dopamine memory. But you never get that thing again. I don't care what it's with. Even with, you know, 
think back to the amazing, any of you have had incredible, um, it's called Nyam, meditative experience, so you're in a practice, you have this amazing experience, right? And from then on, you're chasing that thing, it'll never come again, <laughs> it'll just never happen again. So this is just endemic in us, really. What I think that the Buddhist, philosoph the Buddhist philosophical teachings have to offer people who are suffering with addiction is a framework for understanding greed, hatred, delusion, otherwise known as craving, aversion, and um, ignorance, or hope and fear. You can use any one of these. Personally, I like hope and fear. The reason I like hope and fear is it's just so palpable. You know, you can really like grab hold of it. It makes so much sense. So some wonderful thing is occurring and we get lost in hope. Oh, I hope this doesn't end. That's clinging, right? Some horrible thing is happening and we got lost in hope. Oh God, I hope this stops soon. I can't take this anymore, right? That's clinging. Some amazing thing happens, and we get lost in fear. Oh, please, 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 I can't live without this thing. I just, it can't go away, please. And we grasp at it. And of course, all things are impermanent, so they come and go. Some horrible thing is happening, and we're deathly afraid of this thing. And generally, we're afraid because we're making something out of it that it isn't. This is very, very odd. Terrible experience isn't nearly as terrible as the story we're telling ourselves about terrible experience. We are making it much more terrible through our clinging, through our fear that of it. So hope and fear, craving and aversion, <coughs> greed and hatred, these are things that we all suffer from. And the fact that we believe that there is anything to hope and fear, greed and hatred, craving and aversion is delusion. That is primordial ignorance. And this comes along with the human body. You can't get rid of it. Unless, of course, you decide you want to drop in and actually be aware of it and experience it. So that's one of the things that we offer people who are suffering with addiction. Because of course there are a lot of wonderful um, interventions out there for people with addiction. 12-step is wonderful. I don't know if any of you know about refuge recovery and Dharma punks, but I have to say I live down the Silicon Valley, and we now have refuge recoveries popping up all over Silicon Valley. It's the best thing that has ever happened, because I live in a land of engineers and scientists who are not interested in a higher power in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> it just doesn't exist, so what is the point? And refuge recovery has filled this incredible need that Life Ring tried to fill, and it just, I don't know, Life Ring never took hold somehow. I don't know why. It's wonderful, but it didn't. Refuge Recovery is just wonderful. You can start up your own Refuge Recovery. There's a, there's a manual for it, and it's wonderful. 
you don't need a dharma punks and a dharma teacher and a sangha and all of that. You just have a group that gets together and it functions much like AA. So there are all these wonderful ways for people to work with their addiction. But when they come to work with me, pretty much what they're working on is they're working on the trauma physiology, unwinding the trauma physiology, and reworking their relationship with the habitual um, depressive and anxious narratives that have so thoroughly overwhelmed their way of being in the world. And of course, that's the work I think we all do, don't you think? On the Buddhist path. We are all always invited to wake up and be in the presence of what is arising in the mind. Just as I invited you into practice today. That's the key. What is here? What is arising? Knowing the nature of what is arising. Is it delusion? Or is it undiluted? Is it actuality? Or is it a distortion? This is the key. And this is the continual work that we're all engaged in. Knowing things as they are. The Buddha's term for it was suchness. Knowing reality as it actually is. Free of the distortions of greed, hatred, and delusion. So I want to let you guys ask questions. Yes? Would you please tell us more about refuge? Yes, I will. So some of you may know Noah Levine. Mm -hmm. Yes? So he started Dharma Punks, and he wisely decided that so many people were not interested in the 12-step methodology and they really wanted a way to be able to understand the nature of suffering. So what he did was he created this very beautiful manual and it has all these wonderful um, questionnaires and all kinds of exercises you can engage with and so people essentially get together like they do in AA in a group and maybe they do one of the exercises but it essentially goes through the teachings on suffering and how to liberate oneself from suffering and it's peer led so you use the manual and I've seen people start to have sponsors in it as well Um, there is I think some there are refuge recovery retreats that you can go on I have at least two patients who've been. There was one a couple of weeks ago up in Oregon. And I think if you've been on two of them, you can serve as a mentor for other people who come in the refuge recovery community. But it's totally peer-led. So I know the refuge recovery must be up here in Marin. Yes? Um, it's, it's in East Bay. <coughs> no, there's there are definitely in and East Bay and San Francisco. San Francisco, and I haven't found one in Marin yet. Really? No, I haven't. 
Well, I'm sure somebody's going to start one soon. Petaluma. There's one in Petaluma. Do you know about it? I know of a person who goes. Okay. So you can look it up on the internet, Refuge Recovery. I'm sure there's a meeting listed in Petaluma. Down in Silicon Valley, Dharma Punks has people of all kinds. I mean, seriously, it's all ages, all professions. Yes, there are young people with tats, but honestly, the, the Sangha down in San Jose and over in Santa Cruz, it's so diverse. Yes? Lisa, can you say something about, um, this is a great talk, by the way, it's amazing. Can you say something about how you would incorporate the kinds of things you're talking about into your meditation practice? So which things specifically, so that I can be specific well, with I you? Mean, it's such a, it's kind of a broad way of approaching your whole mentality. Like one of the things that kept coming to mind was the third foundation of mindfulness. Like that's like... The mental contents. Yes. Yes. So how, how you perceive what's happening in your life is a big deal of how happy you are. And that's, that's what you're saying. What you're basically saying is well, give up the love, the hate, or not the hate and the fear, but the hope and the fear. Yeah. And in that moment, when you can see that that's what you're doing mentally, then you can create a better, more healthy reality. Yeah, so actually, I'm going to tweak that a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, one of the things that bothers me about the way Buddhism is being taught these days is it's supposed to make you happy. And... The truth is, we don't change reality. Reality just is. It's our job to actually recognize reality the way it is and to have, ultimately, the complete flexibility to be able to be with all conditions, the entire range. It is not for us to try to create this happy life. That is not the Buddhist path. If anything, the Buddhist path is to recognize that all experience is empty of any inherent solidity. Therefore, happiness is besides the point, just as suffering and pain are beside the point. It's all beside the point. Now, I realize this is a very radical thing for me to say to you, but you are all very sophisticated, long-term practitioners, so I get to be brutally honest with all of you I think, because I know that you know this is true. I don't have to tell you this. So when we notice the mental contents, what we're interested in, as I said, is recognizing, is this distortion or is this the way things actually are? That's all we're interested in. Because frankly, you know, our... Our cognitive capacity is something we have to have. It's a good thing, okay? Nothing would ever get made in this world if we didn't have a thinking brain. It's very important. However, the ego fixation is the problem, not the thinking brain. That's not the problem. It's the distortion that occurs when we think that Experience is something we own, that experience is us. It's not. Trust me, 
The world is happening all around us. It doesn't need us. That is a very self-involved way of thinking about the world, that we make the world happen. We don't. But we have a very, very powerful impact on the way this world is. Very powerful. Okay. I can say more about this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna call on you. Quickly, if one's uh, years and decades of experience only uh, have really involved being, uh, what I want to say, uh, beguiled by the narrative that uh, brings us to our, uh, to uh, I don't know, engaging in illusion. What? Uh, how can one? Um, are there any? mechanical methods that one can uh, recognize that this going on and, and, and actually begin to not only uh, uh, eliminate that default behavior but predispose themselves to not uh, falling, uh, uh, being beguiled by the narrative. Thank you so much. So yes, there is. I'm going to give you the simplest method possible. Are you ready? <laughs> Keep your eyes open. Do not close your eyes. This world is awesome. Don't close your eyes. Okay? Now, and don't meditate. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't meditate. Okay? So now, just let your awareness literally open up right now to the full-on feeling of your entire body sitting in the chair. Okay? Keep your eyes open. And I want you to feel your whole body in the chair. And then I want you to extend the feeling of your whole body in the chair to the chair itself. Okay? Really feel the chair. You've got this capacity. You've got proprioception. You've got interoception. You can do it. Okay? Just feel the chair. And don't close your eyes. Whatever you do, don't close them. Okay? And now, what I want you to do is I want you, your, your eyes are open and you're looking ahead, but I want you to land your awareness in your peripheral vision and see all the objects around on either side and just rest. Just literally rest in the experience of 180 degrees of experience. Now, you're not just seeing objects. They're actually... They're present. They're there. See if you can really feel them. You're probably seeing the people around you feel them. Just feel everything. Use all your senses. Open them up and feel the aliveness that is your physical system. And now what I want you to do is turn the awareness inward to the function of knowing, that which is knowing everything. Just turn your attention in and allow your awareness to rest in knowing itself. And just hang out. Just in knowing itself. All the objects are here. Your whole body's here. Everything's switched on. And then there is the capacity to know all of this. 
That's very simple. You don't have to do anything. Yeah? Getting it? Thank you. Okay, now, now, this is the innate luminosity of mind. Your capacity to know is beyond hope and fear. It's beyond greed and hatred, and it is not diluted. It is so undiluted, it's completely open-hearted. It doesn't matter what comes into the field of awareness. Awareness is going to know it. If, if, and only if, your attention is there with your capacity to know. So if you find yourself lost in some distortion, there you are, you're completely freaking out about something that is either happened or is happening or is going to happen, fine. Notice you're freaking out and just stop right there. Land your awareness in the entire physicality that you are. Open it up to include all of the objects around you. Hang out in the world as it is. And then just really gently turn your attention to the function of knowing. And just rest. And I assure you, the narrative will just stop. It will just unwind because that's what happens in the brain. Spiritual focus, narrative focus shuts off, and then you'll have a chance to actually land in reality, devoid of the self-cherishing, devoid of that fixation to have to fix, have to fix, have to fix. It just falls away. This is the basic aliveness of the psychophysical system. The refu- I have patients who say this to me. My body is the refuge. That's what they say. And I look at them and I say, you are a Buddha. Thank you very much for reminding me. <laughs> yes? In response to what you said about happiness seems to be like the end all and be all and we try to sell happiness, I think that we're, how do I say this? We are so messed up and so busy and so distracted all the time that equanimity itself feels like happiness if we can achieve it. When I can feel equanimous, when even something horrible is happening, mm-hmm. when I can find that spaciousness to accept it, it's so calm compared to the chaos of the fear and the chaos of the aversion and the chaos of the grasping mm-hmm. that equanimity itself feels like. I mean. There's a happiness in equanimity even when the subject of it is awful. Equanimity is a big thing. It's a big word, and it scares people because it seems like it's really hard to achieve. Yeah? And um, you are a beautiful example of somebody who really gets equanimity. So I think you should all hear this and know it's humanly possible to achieve equanimity because here is somebody who's actually experiencing it, number one. Number two... Contentment means not fixing, okay? It doesn't have to be some big equanimity. It's just, okay, I can recognize. I I would like to ban the word acceptance from the English language and replace it with recognize. All you have to do is recognize. That's it. Who cares about accepting it? It's already happened. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Right? 
about something that's already happened. You know, accepting and not accepting it, who cares? The thing is to recognize it occurred and let yourself be in the presence of, yes, it happened, and not be fixated on having to make it something else. Okay? You have a chance to do something with it because you're a human being. So in the next moment, you get to do something different. That's wisdom. Recognition is the key to liberation. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's the mental contents or whether it's some experience outside of us that feels incredibly intolerable. If we recognize the experience as it actually is, generally it's not intolerable. It could be awful, but it's not intolerable. And the truth is that awareness itself is open-hearted. That's the innate compassion in awareness. It has an innate wisdom. That's the clarity. It knows everything. And it has the open-heartedness to receive everything. The problem is the self-distortions, they obscure the clarity of awareness. So what happens is we think that our narratives are truth. We mistake the self-narratives for the pristine mirror of awareness. And that's delusion. And we all have that. Yes? What do you have to say about the compulsive nature of wanting to fix things? Yeah. Some addicts recognize reality that the, that the fix isn't going to fix anything. Yes, but that's the nervous system problem is the compulsion. That's why, as I said, it's so important to realize that the, the nervous system um, is in a, for most of these people, it's in a chronic switched-on situation. What happens is uh, chronic stress that occurs for children in these environments, it actually changes the way the cortisol gene expresses so that it doesn't turn off. So there's just this continual, Zokni Rinpoche, one of my Zokchen teachers, calls it banging against the nadis. So we have a nervous system, but we also have a subtle body nervous system. And when the autonomic nervous system is continually switched on, the subtle body nervous system has this continual banging. It's like somebody's literally banging against it. And you can imagine that that creates a compulsion to try to find some settledness somehow. It's beyond taking a drug is a bad idea, okay? It's beyond that. It's the system is just needing some peace somehow. So that's why you know, those of us who are lucky enough to be trained in some kind of somatic psychotherapy, like somatic experiencing or sensory motor therapy, or there's various other body psychotherapies, we can really work at the level of the nervous system and allow people to unwind all that chronic activation. And then the addiction falls away. Honestly, it just does. It's, it's very beautiful. I've been practicing a little while. Good. Great. So what about the experience of... So where, where does trauma enter... So if, you, if you've had trauma in your past, yes. addiction, you enter and you begin practicing. Yes. And then you have a traumatic experience or something that triggers trauma. You have this great practice. Yeah. But boom. But boom. I know. And 
What if it's really you're face to face with something yes. that's so dear to you? Yep. And the trauma you don't even know. Yes. What what so your your practice, you go on practicing, but there's like a disconnect. This is one of the reasons why Jack Cornfield years ago um, in his training program of Buddhist teachers, he basically forced everybody to go through the first year of somatic experiencing training. All I can tell you is, for my years of practice as a psychotherapist, um, you know, I, the majority of people I see are not Buddhist practitioners, but I see a lot of Buddhist practitioners and longtime ones, and the ones who have trauma histories. You know, they're still struggling with anxiety, depression. They still have these kinds of upsets come up. And it's it, truly, it just, it's just nervous system work that needs to be done. I know that sounds simplistic, but honestly, it, it's just true. Okay, one last question. I don't yes. actually have a question, but I just want to say that I'm really loving this. I'm loving the way you're connecting our individual practices and yes. our cocoon of our studies to what's going on in the larger society culture. Oh, I'm so glad that this was useful Thank for you. you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's very it's the most powerful aspect of the Buddhist teachings. Really, is how thoroughly human it is and how thoroughly applicable it is, and um, it's just such a joy for me to be able to take up all the knowledge that I have and apply it in this way. And yes, I get a lot of flack for it because it often doesn't toe the, the line in almost any situation you could think of even in some Buddhist contexts as well. So, yes? This is sort of a simple question, but to me, one aspect of equanimity is to to be okay with what is. What, I, yes. <laughs> whatever it is. Whatever it is. What good, bad, or indifferent. Yes. But then, there in our world, where it's, you know, I find it, I reach limits of what I can be okay with what is. Well. Because there's so, you know, in my, just in my own internal world, yes. let alone the world outside. Yes. There well, so much stuff. Well, so we do not want to go over into unskillfulness. Equanimity means that when something's arising, you recognize what it is. That's the piece, okay? Right. Beyond that thing that's arisen, you best be a skillful practitioner and wisely act <laughs> to alleviate suffering no matter what. So this is not about, okay, you know, the world is a horrible place and we have to just be okay with it. That's not this. It's not this. It's, this terrible thing is happening. I can't go like this. I can't hide myself from it. I can't wish it away. I have to be strong enough to know that it's my role as a bodhisattva as somebody who recognizes the inherent emptiness of all existence to also recognize that other human beings do not recognize this and that is the source of suffering and it's my job as a bodhisattva to be in the world alleviating suffering wherever it arises. So I have to stop.
because I think we've gone over. Thank you so much.